She, they, so you long for the lewdness of your youth, and when Egypt, your bosom was caressed in your young breast. Like, he's actually talking about the nation of Israel here, and he's using this vivid sexual language. Why? And this is, like, really vivid. I don't know if you've ever seen a horse when it's doing its thing. Like, it's like, no. Right? Why would God use such vivid language? You know, as a therapist, a good chunk of what the work I do is because I'm a marriage and family therapist, right? So I work a lot with marriages, and because I'm a sex therapist, people come in with all kinds of betrayals that have happened. And, um, you know, or they're fearful of betrayals happening to me. So people will be very... I mean, the, the betrayal of marriage is so deeply heart-wrenchingly painful, right? And God says, I understand that. And he uses the language of adultery, the pain of adultery to say, this is how I When you go worship other gods, this is how I So he uses the language of sexuality to show us that's not sex is over here and God is over here. He literally lets us know who he is with sexual language. Sexuality is a language between us and God. And this actually makes sense because, so God uses the sexual, like we just mentioned, to explain the spiritual, but God uses the physical just like that. So um, the, the, the rocks cry out, the trees clap their hands, right? God uses even in language, the physical, to explain himself. I live in uh, San Diego by the ocean. I grew up in Colorado in the Rockies. You, Smokies are crazy beautiful. Like, we go and see God's nature and we go. And then we just, when you love God, you look at his creation and he shouts at you through his beauty, right? God uses the physical. He literally incarnated himself into the body of Jesus. He uses the physical of Jesus to show us himself. So this idea of God using sexuality, the physicality of sexuality, to let us know him more fully matches with that whole picture. This idea of God and sex being so separate isn't actually what you see in the scriptures. Because God is a God who literally puts himself, his Holy Spirit, in us. Right? To show the world Jesus and God. So I do think one of the first things in dealing with sexuality is getting rid of that idea or dealing with that idea of it's such a separate thing. Like I couldn't ever think of God or especially not Jesus. He wasn't married, you know, so I don't think he ever did this. So I don't want to think about that one in that sense. So you can see how we would think that way. So we don't have to divorce God from when you're in the midst of an orgasmic sensation, right? God is in his physicality of the world. Um, What's really amazing, this is even more understood when you look at the words he uses to describe the act of intercourse. Joseph and Mary. Joseph did not know, the word here is gnosko, did not know Mary until she gave, until she brought forth, she gave birth to her son, so to Jesus. He did not know her. This word, Gnosko, is the same word he uses in the hand of all of it. But he says, I know the sheep and the sheep know me. I know the Father and the Father knows me. 
This word gnosko is means a deep, intimate, experiential knowing. That word he uses to describe his relationship with God, how much they know each other. That how well did Jesus and God know each other? How well Jesus is God. So, you know, <laughs> the way the sheep know the shepherd and the way God knows us, how well does God know us? We know that's when we're still in our mother's womb. Deeply and intimately. That idea of that intimate knowing is the word God uses to describe physical intercourse between Joseph and Mary. Not because what Jesus and God had is sexual, or even what between us and God is sexual, but because that deep intimate knowing is what sexual should be. That's God's intention. So I call this, in my language, the overarching view of sexuality biblically when it comes to marital erotic sexuality. That God's intention, we think, so how important is orgasm? Um, so in far, uh, uh, in another part of John, literally he says, um, this is eternal life that you may know God. <laughs> so that's the word, gnosko, that you will gnosko God, this is eternal life. So in a sense, orgasm is almost like this little glimpse of the death of That no deep intimate sex isn't this separate thing. God literally lets us know him, and then the knowing of him is the basis of the deep intimate knowing of marriage and the sexuality in marriage. That sex, sexual intercourse, I mean, whereas isn't just about the orgasm and the intercourse, it's about the deep the goal of your sexual time together should be a deep, intimate knowing. So that's one of the first things you want to examine. That's what is that what's happening between us when we And then what's really fun is you see it in oh that's so interesting. Skip, I missed a slide here. You also see this in Genesis. So in Genesis 4, it says that Adam knew Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And that word is the word yada. Which, guess what that means? A deep, intimate knowing. He uses it in Jeremiah where he says um, that they will know me. They will yada me. It's actually used all over the Old Testament. So both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the word, so they're basically the same word, gnosko and yada. Slight differences, but the same basic meaning of deep, intimate knowing. That's the word of the two most famous married couples, Joseph and Mary, Adam and Eve. That's how God describes their sex life. So that's his intention. That's his intention. That might not be what you're experiencing, but that's his intention for sexuality. The cool thing is it overlaps into this whole idea of how knowing God, this is the gnosko of God, the yadah, actually guards and guides our sexuality. Romans 1, God gave them over in the simple desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the gnosko of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what must be done. So when you don't retain the gnosko of God, that deep, intimate knowing, it messes up your sexual life. And this isn't just go to church, read your Bible. This is who is he? Deeply and intimately knowing his heart and his
been dramatically the last couple of years. I think God's just been kind through some really tough things to deepen my who God is. And I spent um, some time up in Alaska on a retreat. I, I think sometimes you just need some mental not you know, space where you don't have anything else to do. I teach if you want to come. You can come in May and in September to do a solitude retreat in Alaska. You're, it's the church owns a, 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 some grounds there, and literally you're looking out on the mountain, right? So we're, I did one of these on my own, so I was asked to run them, and I thought actually how to take one first. So while I was up there, I was studying. I decided to focus on the Gospels, and I decided to focus on, I feel very loved by God. I've worked on that through the years about who he is and how he feels about me. I shared about that, right? So then I thought, I don't feel that intimate with Jesus, which I should. He was here physically. He died. I feel like amazed by Jesus, but feeling that thing more. So I thought, I gotta, I gotta work. So I spent that whole 10 days in Alaska focused on the book of John, and I wrote down everywhere where Jesus was kind or warm or affectionate or encouraging or loving in the book of John. And then I, I've been doing some new things as far as in my practices between me and God, and I pictured myself as the person he was interacting with, or the person he said that to, or the person he did that with, like literally. So I, one of the first ones that hit me is where John is leaning against Jesus. And this is my one I go to at different times, where I'll literally, when I'm feeling the need, I'll just close my eyes and do this. Yeah. And it came from those 10 days of spending time getting to know some more things about the heart of Jesus towards me. You know, that, oh my goodness, the number of times he's putting his hands on people's heads and healing them. But even like when he's mm, protecting them, you know, somebody, Judas, says about Mary, you know, she shouldn't be pouring out that perfume. And God, that Jesus says of Mary, Leave her alone. Like there was something so powerful for me about hearing Jesus. If anybody harms me, he's like, <laughs> right? So again, encouraging, loving. That's what I did. And I'm telling you, it took me to just a whole new thing between me and God, me and Jesus. I share that to say this part about the knowing who God is and how He feels about us. And What's his character like? We have to kind of do some of those. We've been joking about deeper dives. Um, we have to do some of those deeper dives in our relationship with God as we mature through the years so that our knowing of him continues to deepen and grow, right? How wide, how deep, how long, how high is the love of God. We, we have to be intentional because not only does it help with this area, but it helps with our entire lives and our eternity. But yes, one of the biggest things it does, again, not just going to church, not just reading our Bible, but knowing his heart, his character, is it does also guide and govern our sexuality. I work a lot with sexual addiction, with pornography and affairs, um, and the biggest thing when I have the opportunity to help people is how are they in their knowledge of God? Because I'm going to help them go do a program of recovery from whatever it is they're addicted to. But the biggest thing that's going to help them is their knowing of who he is. So, first Thessalonians 4, the heathen who do not, gnosko God, gave their bodies to sexual morality, right? Mm -hmm. We need to deepen 
and retain our knowledge of God. All right, sometimes, though, our view of sexuality is tainted by what I would call some misrepresentations of the scriptures. And one of the biggest scriptures that's often taught in a way that is not helpful and actually isn't biblically correct is 1 Corinthians 10. So this is the whole passage on um, <clears throat> his body belongs to her, her body belongs to him, marital duty, um, you know, don't have, don't uh, forego having sex unless you're going to pray. So the probably longest passage, Paul is the greatest writer on the body, and he's the greatest writer on sexuality next to Jesus, and they were both single, just saying. Um, so what does 1 Corinthians 7 say? It actually is hitting on two different big ideas, which is ownership and marital duty. And the word for duty, it, it's, it doesn't actually equate with how we think of duty. It's my duty. I've got to do my duty in my marriage. The word is actually ophile, which means, it does mean debt. But it's the word that's, so here's some other ways it's used. In Ephesians 5, the husband has a debt to love their wife. He ought to. So this is the word. It's not duty. Um, Romans 13, 8, the continuing debt to love one another. That's the word ophile that's used in Corinthians about the duty, sexuality-wise, between a married couple. Then, um, the idea of he gives ownership of his body over to her, and she gives ownership of his body, of her body, she gives ownership to him. This word is exousia, which actually means it's a delegated authority. In other words, it's not the, uh, it's, uh, God gave this to me, and I now have a job to take care of it. So it's a word that really has to do with uh, you're using your authority to be a good steward. Like you guys are, you know, make, you make money. Whose money is it? Right? We were supposed to think that way anyway. <laughs> you know, our money's God's. We are called to be stewards of our finances, right? That's actually the idea that First Corinthians 7 is emphasizing. That that and what it actually says in the Greek is it says his own body he gives authority over it to her. Her own body, she gives authority over it to him. So the actual first part of that is that he owns his body and she owns her body. This is a really important point because, you know, in the midst of all the things about the Me Too movement and the female lack of ownership of the body, not just in the last few years, but throughout creation, it actually that idea of using someone's body in a way is completely opposite to what we in scriptures. God actually says, "You own. He gives you your body. You are to be a good steward of your body, but you're the owner, the steward of it. And then you're saying to your spouse, "Hey, can you take care of this for me?" Remember, it says of the husband in Ephesians five that he is to. Um, um, be like Christ, and Christ um, presents the church as radiant. So he's actually talking about the husband towards his wife. So he's saying the husband is to present his wife radiant, right? So that body that wives you have of your husbands and husbands you have of your wives, how are you supposed to have authority over that body? You're to be a steward of that body and to present it to God as radiant. It's the same idea of, like, when you borrow something, how are you supposed to return it? 
In as good or better condition, right? Yes, in a time than that. In as good or better condition. I like how he threw that in there. I don't know who said that, but I like them. Of what someone has loaned you, and you're to return it to them in good or better. That's the idea of God has loaned you your partner's body, and are you to use it to demand? No. You're to use it to serve. What happened to Jesus in his authority? To serve. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so that's actually reflected in the second part here of 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, don't get married. Okay, if you do, the reason why you don't want to get married is because you're going to be now not only concerned about the Lord, but now you're going to be concerned about your partner. So in other words, what are you supposed to be with your partner? You are supposed to be concerned about them. The word concerned there is to live in consideration of. In other words, uh, well, it overlaps with the meaning of to bring pleasing to your partner. That authority isn't to say, hey, this is what you're supposed to do for me. It's to say, I now have stewardship over my spouse's body, and I am called to um, take care of it, present it radiant, and bring pleasure to it, right? So the bummer is, I mean, we've all been together over tricks through the years, where we split into groups, men go into one group, women go to the other when we do the sex lesson. And this is what the women here, men, if you don't know this, this is what the women here is, ladies, you know, he could struggle. So you need to make sure to give him sex. You know, give him sex so he doesn't struggle. That's a really helpful message. <laughs> give him sex so he doesn't struggle. How motivating is that? And it also puts the responsibility on the female to keep him pure. Not helpful. Plus, it doesn't at all emphasize the ownership of the body, which is your goal. It's her body. And how are you to treat it? With ple- giving it pleasure, serving it as a steward, right? Returning it to God in as good or better condition than you got it. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is teaching. And so we do need to do a relearning of how we use the scriptures on sexuality. We're going to have the kind of sexual relationship God intends us to have. We are stewards, right? Uh, we did this one. So, we're getting into the meat of what I do as a sex therapist. So people come, now, so that's the uh, spiritual view of sexuality, right? And I do think as we get into talking about the practicals of sexuality and some of the problems that come with it and how do you get help with those, it's vital to remember whose body you're touching, whose pers- who this person is we're having sex with, and how we are to honor that individual as we then engage sexually. So when it comes to some of the physical challenges that sex therapists deal with, they're literally in the diagnostic manual. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is what's used to, um, to diagnose someone with depression and bipolar. So it's the mental health manual. Well, the sexual disorders are all in there. So that's what I'm going to show you right now. How do I diagnose somebody when they come to see me um, if they're having sexual problems, especially problems with sexual dysfunction. So that's what we're going to talk about right now, some of the physical challenges. So there can be, um, it's called GPUD, which is General Pelvic Pain Penetration Disorder. It's really almost hard to say that. G, triple P, D, General Pelvic Pain, and then Pain with Penetration. Another word that gets used is V, 
vestibular dyspnea, and I'm going to show you that what that means when I show you the diagram. So pelvic pain, and it's not just, by the way, even though it's uh, seen more as a female diagnosis, men will also have pain um, during intercourse. Sexual desire and arousal disorder is the most common reason that people come to see somebody for uh, help meaning low desire. I'm not as, I'm not interested, but then lots of different words get used for that. Um, I yeah, I'll just sell you all kinds of these. So many reasons to come back to Nashville and Huntsville. I have a whole two-hour lesson just on low desire. So there we go. We're going to into it today. Um, then the ones we know the most about: premature ejaculation. Um, Delayed ejaculation, erectile disorder, and orgasmic disorder. So those, uh, female orgasmic disorder and um, delayed ejaculation is actually the word for male uh, orgasmic disorder. So those are in the DSM, and those are what, like if somebody say, having their insurance covered, I have to have one of these insurance codes on it. What are they? Well, we're going to practice something first, because we're going to be talking about a lot of these things. So I'm going to practice something with you. Everybody say this with me. Say, toe. Oh. Eyebrow. Eyebrow. Knee. Knee. Ear. Ear. Nose. Nose. Nose hair. Nose hair. Now go ahead with me and say vagina. Vagina. Semen. 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 Vulva. Vulva. Shaft. Shaft. Breast. Breast. Labia. Labia. Scrotum. Scrotum. Sex. Sex. Penis. 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 Orgasm. Oral sex. Clitoris. Clitoris. Testicles. Nipple. Nipple. Pubic hair. Hey. Oh my gosh, you did. Good job. Good job. Okay, who feels the flush to the face? Right? <laughs> 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 well, when I said toe, kneecap, ear, it's just parts of your body, right? But when we say the parts of our sexual body, we're like, we get hot, we get bothered, we get tight. One of the big things about helping with the very physical things of sex is getting comfortable with the parts of the body and being able to say that when I'm, I have a whole other class I teach, which is how to teach uh, for, um, how to teach your kids about sex. So it's a parent-child class. And the, one of the big things I tell the parents is use the actual terms. Why? I mean, we, we, and blah, blah, are, are one way. But the reality is it teaches, Right? And so it's just an early message of the taboo piece. And we've got to learn to be able to say, when you touch my clitoris, this is what I prefer. When you use your tongue on the head, on the head of my penis, this is what I like to know about it. Being able to be specific biologically is actually a part of improving in our sex. So remember, we're talking about talking a lot in this whole day. So even talking specifically about sexuality and including the physical parts of the body. So we're going to get into real specifically what that means as far as the dysfunctions. What is male hypoactive sexual desire disorder? That's just a really long term. It means low desire. So, um, and what's really funny is when you look at the definition, it's got like one line. Female sexual desire disorder has five. <laughs> we actually don't talk about male low desire. It's about a third of my practice. When a male has low desire, and our culture says all men want sex, and they want sex all the time, and they want it like this. And all of the Christian sex books say, you know, women, you need to give if you want sex. And she's like, I'd like to have sex, and he keeps turning me down. Mm -hmm. So we don't talk a lot about the fact that for some, it's the male that has the lower desire. And when our culture says that men want sex all the 
time. In general, low desire for men creates a lot of distress in marital relationship, often because the female is going, what does this mean? He's supposed to want sex all the time, and now he's not engaging. Is he not attracted to me? Is he doing it with someone else? Is he gay? Those are the three I get. My clients come in, and when they're by themselves with me, they tell me, this is what I'm wondering. Is he doing it somewhere else? You know, is he having an affair? Is he gay? Because he never, and guys are supposed to, right? So the reality is some men have an innate low desire, meaning from when they were early, as teenagers, young adults, they didn't actually think about sex. So that would be what you call primary. They've been having low desire most of their lives. Some men, through time or age or illness or life and hard work and fatigue, their desire builds just due to life issues as they go through life. Some men go through prostate cancer and different illnesses and end up on a bunch of medications and all those can impact desire. A lot of things impact male desire. So one of the first pieces that I deal with when I'm working with couples is normalizing the fact that certain men have low desire and that the interpretation of it causes a lot of issues. But then also, if you've got a female who's like, I'd like to have sex, so I have a couple, uh, a couple seeing me right now where she's the one with the stronger drive, and it's, we don't pay attention to that issue. Like, we pay attention to it when the male has the stronger drive. So the first thing I would say is getting, helping people start talking about it, and talking about the distress that it's causing them, and then how do we work through that. Um, premature ejaculation. So, premature ejaculation. that picture. <laughs> so, um, That's a fantastic picture. Uh, let me ask you this. Shout out some numbers. How many minutes of direct stimulation to the penis before a, ma a typical male ejaculates? Throw me out some numbers. Six, Half. Four. minutes, 
and he's ejaculating between two and five. You know, if we're expecting intercourse to bring her to orgasm, she's going to need all kinds of other stuff if he doesn't, you know, if it lasts as long as that. I did, I did work, I do work with did with, with a couple where he was taking an hour and he just thought that was the most awesome thing and she was like, I'm dying over here. <laughs> and so I said, she kept, um, she was doing all these exercises to get better and I met with them and I, I, I helped him understand you actually have delayed ejaculation. I mean, because they all, they both thought it was her, that she wasn't able to last an hour. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no. Um, so we just don't, Again, we don't know how long are people supposed to last. I had one couple that came that were part of my sex therapy study, and they um, uh, he lasted 30 seconds. Um, that didn't bother him. He still enjoyed the orgasm. It didn't bother her because that's not how she um, orgasmed was through intercourse. He would bring her orally or with his hands, and so it wasn't a distress for them. And so that's not what we focus on. So again, how we feel and think about it is a big part of what does make it problematic. And um, for some who think that is an issue, it might not be. And um, are there treatments? Yes. So uh, you can actually, so SSRIs, depression medication, actually slows down the orgasmic response. It actually lowers the desire as well. So they'll actually put some men who want to use a medication to see if that will help on SSRIs to lower their ejaculatory response. Most people don't want to go on a medication every day in order to help sex be better, but for some, it's been life-changing. There's also exercises that you can do to last longer, with just a taste of what that look, what that can look like. Um, erectile dysfunction is the most well-known one um, because it's all over. You know, we have a, an ex-vice president, you know, doing a commercial on it. Uh, you have to all the commercials out there now. Women are now getting the commercial. You know, or the the the, the guy with his horse trailer and uh, you know, I have erectile dysfunction. So it's, it's the word talked about one. So I actually worked with the lead researcher on Viagra. So Dr. Goldstein was the, uh, in 1998, Viagra was released and they thought the sex therapy office was going to empty because erectile dysfunction was the number one reason people came to see sex therapists for the opposite. So all the penises started working and all the couples started coming in because they were doing all kinds of problems. Oh great, it's working now. Now we really need to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Viagra does work uh, for a good chunk portion of the population. Um, however, if you're buying it online, it's the most faked medication online. So when people are using it, they're saying it doesn't work. But it might be because they actually aren't using the real thing, or they're not doing it for their doctor's orders, or they're finding out just what percentage to use. Um, there's a lot of different treatments um, for erectile dysfunction. It causes a lot of, like right now, I uh, I have a couple right now who's seeing me, and he has, he, he was up to about 25% of an issue with the erectile dysfunction when he was young, like as a teenager, and now he's in his uh, early 30s, and he's at about 50 to 75% of the time. Is it about his anxiety, what you call performance anxiety? So that's called spectatorship, where you're like, is it gonna stay, is it gonna stay, is it gonna stay, oh, no, no, no. So that's called spectatorship, and um, it happens. And so when I'm a sex therapist, I work with that anxiety. Because the anxiety absolutely can be a piece. But it might also be like this young man used Viagra. He only used it at the lower dosage. It worked okay, so he wasn't sure. He just went in for, to his neurologist to see if he has a, a penis leakage. Which means the body, the blood flow does flow, does come in, 
but then it flows right back out. The, um, you have, your veins have muscles. So what Viagra does is it relaxes the ooh, smooth muscles around the veins so the blood flow can come in. But then if the blood flow coming out is not being stopped, there's other chemicals that stop it from coming out, if it flows back out, you've got venous bleeding, it doesn't matter how much Viagra you use, you're not going to remain erect. What they do, can do with that is you can take phentolamine, which is a um, intra um, soul injection. And you take a shot to the penis, and it works immediately, and it becomes erect. If you have intercourse, yeah, everybody goes, no! <laughs> Actually, I have two clients right now that, that they, they have venous leakage, so they fire it someone for them, they take a shot, and they can have sex, and it's very enjoyable. Um, so, <laughs> So there are all kinds of medicines for this, but also there's all kinds of approaches to learn how to deal with around the erectile gland. So sometimes people have trouble becoming erect, and sometimes people have trouble maintaining the erection on both. And so those would be different, different kind of phenomena. But I have, there's all kinds of treatments that you can do as far as touch, synthetic focus is the name of it to really help deal with that anxiety so that you're really in the moment. Because when we're worried about, is it gonna, am I gonna lose my erection? It really takes away from the enjoyment of the time. Sex is so focused on intercourse, and so focused on orgasm, and so focused on things. If we take those intense, scared, worried folks away and focus instead on all of the enjoyment of the touch and the sensual, remember the guy with the, you know, the, um, the scarf and the children. Like, there's all kinds of ways you can enjoy sexuality that aren't just about the erection. I worked with a couple that he had prostate cancer. He was in his 70s. They came to do a consultation with me. And she, they hadn't had sex since when he had surgery a year ago. And she's like, they're in their 70s. She's still like, I'd like to have sex. Yeah. And um, they were religious. And so I, I always check what people's belief systems are. And so I said, do you, um, are hands an option, or um, is the mouth an option? So I'm checking on all their beliefs around oral sex. And they're like, no. The, the God made the mouth for food and for talking. And I said, okay. <laughs> I said, are hands an option? Hands are an option. Okay, let's talk about what you can do with hands. <laughs> so, um, prostate cancer can affect either immediately or long term um, for health assumptions. So, um, Helping couples to have an enjoyable sex life, no matter what the outcome is, is really the work that I do, including that erectile dysfunction. Um, <laughs> delayed ejaculation is someone remains erect, and they either take a really long time in their minds, or they just do. So this guy took an hour, that's delayed ejaculation. Or they just don't reach orgasm at all. So that's why it's called the male orgasmic disorder. And a lot can, I had this, I had this couple, so they hadn't had sex in 10 years, they were sleeping in separate rooms, they did my sex therapy study, I had, I was supposed to be done in 12 sessions, you know, it ended up being a lot longer than that, um, and actually about midway through I wasn't sure if I could keep working with them, because it was a sex therapy study, it had to move forward, and they were stalled at building the friendship. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't getting anywhere near sexuality, so I met with him and said, you have some things you got to change. He totally did it. Things radically turned around. It was really amazing watching them shift. So then they end up literally, 
there my funny story, running around naked in their backyard because he had prepared some fun place in the backyard to have sex. I mean, where he would pull up, you know, the car to the house and go, excited to see her. She'd be on a trip and go, I get to go home. Their relationship radically changed. So they would come back in their follow-up and they're having intercourse. She's having orgasm, but he's actually staying fully erect the whole time they're engaging, but not going to orgasm. And I'm like, you know, um, we weren't even talking about orgasm when they first came, right? Because they weren't even sleeping in the same room and they never talked. They were doing so great. And so I was like, let's do this. I really want you to go see this specialist, you know, Owen Goldstein. Go see him, get checked out. It's expensive, it's worth it. So he decides, okay, going to, mentions it to his GP. His GP goes, oh yeah, he's great, you need to go. Actually, but before you do, I was so nervous. He goes, let's take you off of your SSRI and see how that works. And I was like, I had totally forgot that he'd been on SSRI because he was just in a difficult place emotionally before we started treatment. And he was in a great place. So the doctor changed his medication from the SSRI to Wellbutrin, and then later he actually went off of it, and that next week he had no And I was like, now I'm such a good therapist. <laughs> so medication can affect delayed ejaculation. Um, but then also, so the, the book, The Art of Intimate Marriage, I had different people reading it as I was getting ready to publish it. And one of the couples, their disciples, he has delayed ejaculation, and he wrote about the embarrassment that he felt like, surely my wife's like, can you please get this over with? This is taking so long. That that's what he was worried about, which actually the anxiety about that can be problematic. She was also reading, and she was like, she literally sent me an email, just so you know, I do not think that. I'm actually okay with it. But those kinds of worries, right, can happen, and maybe she is going to, that's a big part of the work around delayed ejaculation. Delayed ejaculation is a little bit more challenging than all of the male disorders to treat. Um, and so sometimes it's literally learning to enjoy uh, what you do have with a gift out the expectation of this is how it has to end. Uh, this, this one couple where he does take the shot, he doesn't always reach orgasm, and that really bothers him because he's taking a shot of his penis. Surely he'll get the pleasure out of it. He's like, it's just different per couple what the end game needs to be. To be. Um, this one. Doc, can you write me a prescription for someone up by other? He's got the sign. Say no. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, 1998 when my came out, right? <laughs> what about low desire for women? Um, it's the most common. Um, uh, in all of the research that's reported, and the most common it's shared with sex therapists and with doctors. Doctors are actually the first line of somebody saying something's going on. And um, I'm going to go into that in some future slots. This is this is going to take some explanation, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go there. Low um, orgasm for women. So female orgasmic disorder can mean that they've never had an orgasm, or they did in other circumstances and aren't now or they have it with this partner or at this time in their life, that would be secondary. And so uh, there can be a lot of different factors to talk behind that, but I would say the number one thing is we actually don't prioritize female sexual enjoyments. Historically, I, 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 I wrote a whole thing on um, the treatment of sexuality over the millennia, and it's almost impossible to find any treatment for women over the millennia because we've so, focused so much on male sexuality and male enjoyment, aphrodisiacs, 
which is the most common form of treatment that's out there in the last 2,000, 4,000 years, aphrodisiacs are focused on the male. So enjoyment for sexuality isn't actually even historically a thing. And like now, I was at a shower, an intimate shower for a young woman that was getting married. She wanted to be a little bit of a wise words. And I said, the thing I would focus on the most is that you prioritize your enjoyment. Our culture says that men want sex, we need to make sure that they're having it, they're enjoying it. That's isn't every couple. That's, it's, it's a cultural piece. It's not just you or this body of believers. It's a cultural piece where we don't focus on the need for women to also enjoy sexuality. So what does that mean? Like, um, what's your favorite dessert? Shout out. Which is brownies, chocolate cake, ice cream. Okay, now I want you all close your eyes and picture the, your favorite dessert. Picture Think about eating that. Okay, open your eyes. Did you feel the little tingle on here? Not everybody, but if you really think about it, you can actually feel your slide left go, ooh, right? So if you haven't had any orgasms, your body doesn't go, ooh, I can't wait to the next one, right? If you haven't eaten the chocolate cake, you're not going to have the saliva response to the picture of chocolate cake, right? So actually, low orgasms create a low desire for women. So pay attention to orgasm. And then, okay, so why don't some women reach orgasm? A lot of times, it's because there's not the right kind of or the um, time of stimulation. And I'm going to go over that a little bit more when we talk about anatomy. So this might be someone's picture about not having an orgasm. Or this might be. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I love that. Although this is just a funny picture, the idea, so I, the idea of thoroughly being able to relax like that and let the body flop wherever it does, for some women it's actually hard to reach orgasm because they're uncomfortable and embarrassed with what their body does in the midst of orgasmic or after orgasmic response. Um, that they might either be body conscious and they don't like where they're, um, what's the, what's the, um, shaky jack, right? They don't like their jelly shaking. And so they don't want themselves relax enough <laughs> to reach orgasm because they're, this idea of flop, flopping like that is, you know, and the sounds. I mean, you know, there's this, there's not just for women, but for men and women, there's this cartoon where <laughs> the wife says to the husband, Henry, show everybody what face you make when you're having an orgasm. <laughs> Our body does all these weird things during orgasm. You know, our feet and hands do these weird things. Our legs do weird things. Our knees do weird things. Like, and so sometimes the discomfort and embarrassment around what the body does, where the sounds that come out, can actually keep some women from relaxing enough to reach orgasm, right? Or perhaps uh, the, the lover needs some work um, on how to bring her to orgasm. So we're going to talk about that. If there is, so this is the sexual case. <laughs> 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 Worst thing <laughs> possible. Look at that one all the way to the right. Oh, this is really causing pain. Oh, this is interfering. 
is unbelievable. I am so much in pain. So, sexual pain is a real thing, and it causes, it's going to totally kill desire, and it's going to make reaching orgasm difficult. And, literally, people go to their medical doctors and their gynecologists who say, yeah, women have pain. Here, take a lubricant. No. You cannot engage in intercourse if it's painful. It's going to kill your sex life. Let me emphasize that. Sex cannot be painful. So picture this. The stove is red hot. I'm going to put my hand on that. No. Everything in your body says stop, right? So the brain, if sex is painful, will literally say don't do that. It's going to kill all things. There are medical answers and other types of answers for sexual pain. Your mom and your sister, this woman that came and saw me, she, um, she went on her honeymoon. She came to see me, they were about seven years into their marriage, had two kids. On the honeymoon, great sex, everything was great. On the, on the flight back, she ends up in extreme pain and gets diagnosed with a, a UTI and they put her on um, medication and she has UTIs. Every time she has sex, by the time she comes and sees me, she has seen eight gynecologists, four urologists. She's had surgery on her urethra. And I'm listening to her, and I was like, I didn't even want to tell her. I'm listening to her process, and I knew from all the care she got, she never saw a sexual medicine specialist. There are those out there. A sexual medicine specialist is going to have a whole different realm of things they're paying attention to. She's seen gynecologists and neurologists who are trained in gynecology and neurology. Actually, those people come to see Dr. Goldstein, who I work with. Uh, he trains them in sexual medicine. But again, they're few and far between, so they're hearing, you know, if you're in your urethra or it's in your head. And so actually, what her mom and sister said to her um, when she got back from her honeymoon was, yeah, all women have pain. So, and, and we've all heard it, we've all even probably said it, but it doesn't actually have to be that way. This doesn't have to be people's experiences. So, does menopause and look and changing hormones cause a dryness to the tissues that cause pain? Yes. So, what happens with menopause is you go back to the hormone levels you had before. So, it really affects the plumpness of the tissues and the elasticity of the tissues. Estrogen and testosterone clump up the tissues of the vagina and the vulva. And when they are gone due to menopause or to cancer treatments, so the drugs that someone goes on and the cancer itself uh, strip the body of estrogen. Uh, going on a pill actually strips the body of testosterone. And so all of these things, these messing with the hormones, as well as skin changes over time with age, right, and dries up. And that is also hormone, hormone involved. So what happens is the the, um, the vagina has what we call rugae, it's bumpy, right? And when someone goes through those loss of hormones, the rugae goes flat. So then when the penis is thrusting in and out, it's no longer doing that in this movable environment. It's doing that on this flat surface, which causes fissures in the um, tissue, which causes pain. That's one of the reasons. And then um, the dryness means that the plumped up tissues around the clitoris and around the vestibule have um, decreased. It's called clitoral atrophy, so the, the tissues atrophy. They get 
thinner, and you end up with pain. So yes, people ask me a lot. For some women, though, when they go through menopause, they actually don't experience quite the extreme levels of the drops in their hormones. They don't experience pain, and they experience this whole resurgence in their sexuality because now they're not worried about getting pregnant, and they don't have kids running around, and they actually enjoy themselves a bit more. It can, so menopause and that those years aren't the same for everybody, but for a number of women, hormonal changes make a big difference to pain levels. So, uh, what I would recommend is called When Sex Hurts by Ellen Wilson. This is who I work with. Um, there's only a few of him, honestly, in the world. He trains people, people come from all over the world. I just had clients come in from Sweden and Canada and um, uh, three different parts of the world this last uh, year. So um, there are answers. So what I tell people to do is go do the cheap version, go buy the book, find yourself, take it to your gynecologist and say, treat Right? If they don't know how to treat that and they say, oh yeah, 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 you're a female, you need estrogen cream. I'm going to explain why that doesn't always work. And that's the only reason they give you is they can get better. And you're not seeing the right person. You need to go see somebody who really knows what they're talking about. So let's talk about uh, physiology. <clears throat> Sexual functioning 101. What turns your sass on? Sex what are the differences between men and women yes. in the arousal system? Here they are. <laughs> Facts. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but this is kind of generally true. So how do you bring about arousal for men who are dealing with, say, erectile dysfunction? This is going to be a little bit more complicated. There's going to be quite a few more uh, dials and things like that on there. But in general, I had one, one couple. They were pregnant. Well, they weren't pregnant when they started seeing me, but during the process of therapy, she became pregnant, and she had her first orgasm at eight months pregnant. I know. And um, so he did a good job. He got her there. They were so excited. They came to this session. They were like, hey, we're like, hey. They come the next week, and he's like, oh, I did the same thing. And it didn't work. And I'm like, oh, no, it's so complicated. It's the exact same thing. That's um, why it didn't work. There's a reason. So I'm going to show you the physiology and biology. So this is the female vulva. And these are the different parts of it. I'm showing you the uh, light-skinned female vulva and a woman of color's female vulva because the reason why that's particularly important is that during stimulation to the vulva, um, uh, blood flow comes. So when you're aroused, actually, blood flow comes to the genitals. But then specifically when you're stimulating the genitals, it brings that throbbing and tingling sensation. That's from the blood flow coming. And in, the, in, the, in a woman of lighter skin, you can actually see the blood flow. Her tissues go from pink to purple. Um, you better check it out. You can see that. <laughs> However, in a woman of color, you might not see that color difference, right? So, but what we can tell in, uh, for both is that the tissue becomes erect. So the reason why that is is let's talk about all the different parts that go on the right show. You've got the vagina, the big black hole there. So the vagina is a tube that goes up from where it's open and it connects with the cervix. And the vagina, actually the first third of the vagina is where all of the nerve endings are. The back two thirds, there's not a lot of um, sensation. So I've had women share, I don't feel anything back there. It actually, you don't really feel a lot back there because there's not a lot of sensation there. Um, the vagina is estrogen fed. So if the pain or discomfort is in the vagina, the tube goes up to the cervix, then estrogen is appropriate. 
thing is though, see the pink area? That's called the vestibule, especially the pink area right around the opening to the vagina. That's called the vestibule. And the vestibule is testosterone thick. What that means is if a female is fear feeling a ripping, tearing, and burning sensation at entry, right around that area, and a gynecologist says you're a female with estrogen cream, but actually it's at the vestibule, she needs testosterone cream which isn't even created for women, by the way, the problem. They actually, the first female sexual medicine that came out was about five or six years ago. Wilson was a researcher on it. And um, they had to sue the FDA to get through. You know, <laughs> they provide, provide to get through. Should we be using medications for sexuality is a big question in the field, in the world, okay. But the bottom line was, if somebody needs a medical answer, it shouldn't be whether they're male or female that they can get that answer, right? So testosterone is actually FDA approved for men. Doctors can give it to women off-label, it's not illegal. And what they do is they go to a, send them to a compounding pharmacy. Women have a tenth of the testosterone in their body that men do. Men and women have estrogen and testosterone. Women with low testosterone due to a pill or surgery or various life changes, that, right, those tissues, they're drying up. So I went into, I have a friend of mine, she was the first person I sent to a sexual medicine specialist, and she um, had been experiencing pain for about 35 years since she was a teenager. Um, she couldn't, when she was younger, use a tampon. She couldn't, like, gynecological appointments were super painful. And she had a great, she, she and her husband were very close, love each other. Great respect, great sex life. She had regular orgasms, but intercourse was super painful her whole life. And so um, she and I are literally out on a vacation floating in the pool. And I'm like, oh no, that, you can get some help with that. You need to go see this guy. So she does. And in six weeks, she's painful. Because she saw the right person. Yeah. To tell you the truth, going to see Goldstein was a four hour appointment because they check everything to find out exactly what's wrong. In her case, she needed to take a couple different, they do the blood, uh, to check the hormones, they check conduction of nerves, they check the muscles, they check the whole pelvic floor, and a number of other things. And I sat and watched her velocity, which is where you, um, you have to use a microscope to see parts of the vulva. So, by the way, that area down there is not called the vagina, that's only one part, that area is called the vulva. Right? And so they do a vulvoscopy where they use a microscope to really take a close look at the vagina and the vulva. You have glands, women have glands, Bartholin's and Skeen's glands, two above, two below of the vagina. And you can actually, see, you can't see them with the naked eye, you actually have to have a microscope. And I'm looking at them I'm like, oh, there you go, there's the problem. All four glands are bright, bright red, and you can't see it with the naked eye. So she was a perfect example of someone with low testosterone, but then any kind of friction to that area created severe irritation and pain. And so, um, yeah, six weeks she was going through. So is that the answer for everyone? No, but what I am saying is pain and sex should not go together. Going and getting help is important. Um, right above the vagina and the vestibule is the urethra. A lot of women don't know where they urinate from. That's the little teeny black hole that you see there. The urethra coming from the bladder, exiting right there. Males, obviously, most anyway urinate at the tip of their penis. 
So the female urethra comes out right above the vagina, and it's some, some of them are like,
wherever the stimulation is, because remember, it comes underneath the labia, so it's all over the vulva. It stimulates, wherever the stimulation happens, the erectile functioning, that signal is sent up through the clitoris and the orgasm. Clitoris is the seat of female orgasm. Um, the thing is about the G-spot is it's named after Grafenberg, who's a male. <laughs> That's so messed up. So uh, the reclaiming of that more recently has been calling it the goddess spot, um, the G spot. Basically, women, um, right, their, their erectile tissue is spread around, right? It's a little bit more like this. So male erectile tissue is a little bit more like this, right? So direct, have you ever seen somebody do this and mean the direction? Uh, so the direct stimulation to the penis is um, direct and firm to the penis is typical to, for the need to get to erection. Women, right, they're a little bit more like this, so think of it more like a white bomb, white bomb, you know, kind of thing. Um, women, so you'll get a male going, oh, her clitoris is what I need to stimulate. Get back to the seat of her organ, so I'm going to do this. I'm like, no, don't do that. Because actually the clitoris has the greatest number of nerve endings and then any other part of her body. So pain and pleasure are kind of this fine line for us females. So really communicating around what's arousing and what's not arousing is vital to the process of a female for most women reaching orgasm. Because again, what will happen is sometimes women will get to that point of it feels painful and they'll say stop, stop, stop. Um, and you can, you can just stop it. For many women who haven't yet reached orgasm, you go and you stimulate breasts somewhere else, buttocks, thighs, going around the labia that's all spread out, and then coming back to the clitoris when that really intense, almost painful feeling somewhat settles, and then coming back to the clitoris, head. The head, so your, your tongue and your fingertips are the most um, nerved, most nerve endings in your body. The clitoris has three times as many. And what's really fascinating about the clitoris, this is so interesting. So the male penis, what do you do out of it? You ejaculate out of it, the sperm uh, flows out of it to impregnate, and the, it's the seat of sexual satisfaction, right? All of the erectile tissues in there. The female clitoris, what jobs does it have? One and pleasure. God made the female body specifically to experience pleasure. We have to change that message and really make sure that we're prioritizing female pleasure. Alright? Um, so what's been taught for years around arousal? So I said I would take some time on um, desire. So this is the main model at the Masters and Johnson in the 60s to the 70s are researchers and they published and it was it had never been done before and they published the what they call the sexual response cycle so first someone has desire then touch starts happening and arousal kicks in then they have an orgasm and then they go through a period of resolution where the body goes back to normal and calm right and they said this is how it works for everybody but this is actually not true for about 50 percent of the population it's not true for 70% of women past the childbearing years. 70% of women past the childbearing years don't have desire first. So let me show you what they do often have. So I'm going to skip this and go to this. This is the Sans model that came out in 2000. And she said the majority of women, first they're willing. So we're starting to blue there. First they're willing. They're like, 
He's like, hey, do you want it? And she's like, sure. So she's going. And then sexual stimuli starts, so they start messing around. But notice, with an appropriate context, and this is my job as a sex therapist, is really paying attention to everything we did today. How's their relationship going? How's their conflict resolution going? How's their touch and affection? How's their sensual touch going? You know, did they just have a fight? And he's like, I want to have sex. And she's like, yeah, no. So what's the context of the relationship? Because if sexual stimuli starts in a context, it's not all the stars aligning that needs to happen. The reality is the, um, the, there are so many reasons for why that stimuli won't lead to desire kicking in if the relationship is not going well. So that's my job there, is those two words, appropriate context. So sexual stimuli starts, and then the brain goes, and the body goes, ooh, I'm starting to feel that. Oh, I'm noticing that. That feels kind of nice. And then she notices I'm aroused. So a lot of times women don't notice they're aroused because they don't have a penis that sticks up and says, hi, I'm aroused. <laughs> so it's so she starts to go, oh, that actually feels good, and I can feel some of that tingling and throbbing. And then she experiences what the song called responsive sexual desire. Then her body goes, okay, I like to have an orgasm now. So then she may have an orgasm. She may not have an orgasm. She ends up with some certain level of, of sexual satisfaction. Um, but also she's getting rewards from the, um, there's emotional intimacies in, in touch. She's, there's a sense of well-being, especially with orgasm, because oxytocin floods the body during orgasm, and, and so does dopamine, which says, whoa, this is really great. And so that sense of well-being is actually from the oxytocin. And then the lack of negative effects. So she didn't wait around for desire to kick in. She was like, okay. She's not necessarily feeling it ahead of time, and she's in a good relationship, so she says okay. And then the time goes well because he's you know, an intensive lover. And so then she's got multiple reasons to agree to sex, it might up her motivation, but notice where it still starts. She might not get to the point where she feels desired. This plateau, this, this the series of reaches orgasm is so different. This is a male model, and it's not all males. So that's why I say um, about 20 to 30% of men that see me actually don't experience desire first. They, this was originally written as a female model, but actually I show these two pictures. I show this one, and I show this one to my couples, and I say, which one are you? Some women say they're this one. They feel desired, so they have a higher desire. Maybe especially during ovulation when they're just a little bit more, ooh, I'd like to have sex. Um, or maybe just in general. Some men never feel it ahead of time, or rarely do, and they don't, their desire doesn't kick in, until after things get going. And the problem with this is we've been telling people you're supposed to feel desire ahead of time. This is what's taught to every therapist and to the majority of sex therapists, right? And so we've been telling people you're supposed to have desire first and it's making them frustrated, what's wrong with me, their spouse is going, you don't want me, you don't want me, when actually they just don't necessarily feel desire first. And so what I focus on isn't desire, but is enjoyment. Let's focus on upping your enjoyment, your communication, your pleasure. That may increase your desire, or you may just be, get, your desire kicks in after you get going. So this would be the most significant area of treatment that I um, do with couples.
So with male sexuality, I do spend a lot of time so you see that the, this model, right, looks like they sliced it off, like, you know, yeah. So in the inside, the two big cigar-shaped bodies, the spongy or something, you can actually see the men have fur as well, but there's a couple of four. Um, actually,
So basically, one of the, the challenges, well, one of the things that's important to know is that male um, erectile tissue is also a bit spread out, not quite as much as women, but it is obviously mostly contained in the penis itself. But it does go into the pelvic floor, and it does go around the prostate gland, and hence why stimulation to the anus can bring arousal pleasure for men and women, because men and women have prostates, and the prostate does have erectile tissue around it. People ask me a lot about, um, should that be included, and people ask about the arousal. The reason why there's arousal is because of the erectile tissue around the um, and then definitely the tissue of around the testicles is very tender, but also has a lot of nerve endings, and so pressing to the scrotum brings a lot of pleasure as well. So again, it's not just penile stimulation that's enjoyable for men, but they're really exploring the whole area. So erection, excuse me, blood flow being one of the phenomenal challenges. I did, this is real funny, I was um, at a training, in a cadaver lab, that's weird. And um, we were looking, it was a sexual health training, Dr. Goldstein was the trainer, and we were looking at genitalia and some of the things that, you know, we were looking at it live, well, not live. And, um, <laughs> and he, so he had brought a, um, a bicycle seat, and he was showing the pelvic floor in the bicycle seat and the damage that could happen from the bicycle seat over and over from gymnastics or riding a horse, things like that, or from falls, right? So he was showing the damage of uh, bicycle riding to this male cadaver's pelvic floor. Uh, later that day, I was at a bike store because we were buying an electric bike for him. I love my electric bike. And so the guy who was helping out, he said, oh, you know, we're waiting for something, and he starts chit-chatting. He says, what did you do today? I was like, I Part of the pelvic floor. 
So like when you go see a doctor and they have you cross your leg and they put the mallet and you go, woo, and they're checking your reflexes, they're checking to see how the lowest part of your CNS is working to make sure that those, are, those uh, what we call the major response, that reflex is working. That's actually what controls the initial what that This is for men and women, by the way. So what that means is you have a picture floating through your mind and boom, your body gets this kind of tingling or slightly erectile response. That, your brain's not even really involved yet at that point. Why is it important? Because for some couples, the, the spouse might become really upset when he becomes erect at all kinds of different reasons. I had a couple practicing um, a touch exercise in front of the mirror, and he was looking at her body, and he started having an erectile response, and she's like, why are you becoming erect? You know, like as if it was controlling and so it's important to actually recognize what controls that system because sometimes people don't feel see for it. You'll be watching TV and the, um, um, what's the lingerie? Victoria's Secret will come on and there's an immediate reptile response. What I actually train people in in dealing with their sexuality is then if you're not going to engage sexually, you go, oh, it's working. God did good. <laughs> and then you might decide what you're going to do with that arousal response from there. Well, that actually happens when I'm working with couples who are, remember I said the sexual vacation where they're not engaging and having intercourse, but they're touching each other sensually. When that occurs, you might get an erectile response and they might not be engaging in sex right away. I actually give couples exercises to touch each other, both sensually and sexually, and they're touching their vaginas, their penises, but they're not having intercourse or going to orgasm, especially if they're dealing with these different issues that we're talking about. Well, so then when they're doing all of this and they're cuddling and they're not supposed to be having sex and she's noticing, they're spooning and she can feel his penis rubbing up against her buttocks, which is like, <sighs> the thing that I explain is that that is actually just an automatic response of the body. You may not be having intercourse afterwards, but what about we just go, yeah, it's arousal, it happens, and then we go on. We have so much reactivity, like if arousal happens, then there's going to have sex and there's dead arousal. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. And that might not necessarily be happening each time, right? So the other piece about male erectile responses is that as they age, they might not be having many um, morning erections, and it takes them longer amounts of stimulation to reach orgasm. So age does impact male sexuality, testosterone goes down. Men, men's testosterone drops in their 30s and then dramatically in their 50s, and erectile issues dramatically increase after their 50s. So pretty common. I get asked a lot of times, should I take testosterone? Uh, taking testosterone doesn't usually help with erectile function or sexual function. It might up motivation in life, but not necessarily um, upping the amount of arousal. Viagra, in general, in combination does that. For the most part. So, how do you have, this is our last, we are on the last stretch. How do you have a mutually fulfilling sexual activity? What's the fun? Let's talk about some of the practicals and some of the fun. What husbands does your wife need? What does she need to make all the stuff we've been talking about enjoyable? First Peter 3 7 says, be considerate as you live with your life. That word there is actually an oscope have a deep, intimate understanding of her and what her body needs and what she needs. Live according to knowledge. 
be a lifelong student of the body. She needs time. Some women need to know ahead of time when, for some women it makes them anxious to know ahead of time when you want to have sex, but for other women, it helps them prepare mentally for that time together. And she might need more time. Five minutes of sex probably doesn't work for her. If she needs, if she's going to reach orgasm and it takes her 20 to 30, and she might need a lot more caressing and dancing naked and putting all kinds of fun things all over your body. You know, she might need a lot more play and fun. The atmosphere. How's the non-sexual touch going that we talked about earlier? Is it playful? How's your verbal intimacy going? Um, how's your conflict resolution going? She's going to feel a lot better when you're verbally and emotionally connected in general and that you're, you're the one initiating sharing and you're the one initiating conflict resolution. And then really paying attention to her need to hear all the lovely things we talked about as far as her body. And then, Song of Solomon, Chapter 2, Arise, come with me, planning, making her feel special. What does your wife need? What she needs is dates, 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 dates. She needs dates. Okay? What does a husband need? Again. But 
at Hugh's up and she's like, I just kind of wish that he had a family, that he would come up and like put his arms around me and touch me, whatever, and then go, you're such a good mom. That the honoring of the entire person, even what else does your husband need? Go spend some money by the laundry. Put your sheets on the bed. Don't fold laundry in your bedroom. If your bedroom is a laundry room, go ahead and change that. That's one of the big things I work on is bedtime and bedrooms. When I'm working as a sex therapist, go ahead and spend some money. Toys, we'll talk about that in a minute. Share it. Husbands will often say, um, I don't know what she likes to do. So I have couples right now in their sexual fantasies and share with one another. Oh, are you supposed to fantasize as a disciple of Jesus? And everybody close your eyes. <laughs> close your eyes, and I want you to think and picture in your mind one of your favorite memories sexually with your spouse, where you felt harassed. Picture what they're doing to you. Remember where you were, and what it felt like, and what they were doing. Picture it in your mind. I like to be nice. I thought you'd be nice. Your body's nice. I'm going, oh, you're messy. <laughs> you might have been getting a little bit of a tingle. The reality is that fantasy about your partner. So what I would recommend is if arousal or desire is problematic, keep your eyes open and watch what your partner's doing to you when it's enjoyable. And you can replay that, and it can actually help you the next time you're having sex fantasize about your partner. As, you're, as you know, okay, we're going to have sex later tonight, I'm now going to um, picture it in my mind, that enjoyable time that we had last week, last month, last year. So share, sharing not only in your mind, but also what are some fun things that you would love to do? Share those with your partner. Tantalize and blindside him with a surprise. You know, he shows up at home and you show him that uh, you have a thong on and he's got to think about it all night long. <laughs> um, Tell them, you know, plan a meal. All the kids are gone. Nobody's in the house, and you are naked while you serve it. So, you know, tantalize them, blindside them with some surprises. Initiate and engage. Let's look at some words. When you think of these words, what do you hear? Leaping, climbing, seeking, jewels, earrings, ribbons. All you think of buffets, battles and chariots, crowns, swords, shields, seas, wind, rivers. What are you picturing when you see these words? Of sexual experiences that we both have an orgasm at the same time. It shows it in the movies, right? 
They come in and they rip their clothes off and they're panting <laughs> and they're up against the wall and she tosses her in the bed. He tosses her in the bed and they both have orgasms at the same time. They're like, that was my bed orgasm. Right? But that's how the movies show it. That's not how it happens. So watch your expectations. Um, premature ejaculation. Does female orgasm happen during intercourse? No. The sex always got to be uh, steak and lobster. Sometimes it might be macaroni and cheese. <laughs> right? So it might sometimes just be kind of, that was okay. Prepare yourself. Shower. <laughs> just saying. Put on something that feels enjoyable to wear against your skin. Shave. Again, roughness can be challenging, uh, to, especially the oral sex. Um, Hand Shop. Send some money. Play, explore, buy some lubricants, some toys. So, um, my, my an early marriage retreat was um, one of the elder couples in LA led it, and they were in their 60s. And <laughs> they asked. So the five questions that I always get asked are pretty common, and one of them is at, at this kind of a, an event, and one of them is commonly toys. Should we use toys? So someone asked it at that retreat. You know, are vibrators okay? So 60 year old female elder's wife goes, I'm 60. It helps. Enough said. Enough said. I'm 60. Enough said. Wearing fun things, playing fun games, playing strip poker. Play strip poker. Um, dance naked. Use, oh, by the way, um, if you have KY jelly, throw it out and go buy something else. Um, Astroglide is one. Actually, Astroglide's made in San Diego, which I think is funny. The one I always tell, oh, why don't I have that one here, that I always recommend people use is called, um, oh dear, liquid soap. So, you, yeah, go buy liquid soap. Use, use, there's all kinds of different lubricants. And what they can do is, number one, they can, they can make sex less painful, but honestly, they can really up enjoyment, and they can help a female reach orgasm. So, Explore. Um, yes, you can buy the glow in the dark paint and put it all over each other's bodies and turn on the lights and look in the mirror. There's edible underwear. All kinds of fun products out there. Right? Strip poker, fantasy list. Send a note. I, the first couple that disciple our marriage said um, that she sent, she sent a scripture saying, Thrusting and during pain in the back. You've got a, a, a pump. 
If you're having erectile problems, you can actually use a vacuum pump, which literally pulls blood flow to the penis to become erect. I don't know. It's not a very popular instrument, but you can buy one. So, so toys, she said, Jennifer, these are all the things that are wrong. We can have a lot of discomfort around what's called sexual AIDS, but people are living longer and they're having sex longer than reality is. Sometimes they're needing assistance, both when they're aging and when they're younger as well. So you can actually, you can go to this website and then, do I have the other ones on here? I don't. In my book, I have a bunch of other websites where you can buy stuff and you don't have to look at naked pictures. Actually, they use gummy. Show positions. For those, I'm not I sure how I feel about that. I probably cannot go to that website. No, you can learn about products without having to see them. I probably leave them blocked. Right? So there's some stuff on the play.